this moment will be looked back on as a as a real pivotal moment, a sort of hinge of history moment. In late October 2018, author and journalist Elizabeth Colbert, a staff writer at The New Yorker, was at the American Academy in Berlin to deliver a lecture entitled Living Through the Sixth Extinction. The talk was based on her recent book, The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History, which received the 2015 Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction, among other accolades. We sat down with Colbert to dig a bit deeper into the scientific, technological, and policy issues raised in her lecture, and to hear from her about what it's like to be an environmental journalist in these dire times. We began by asking Colbert for a brief overview of her last book. The book is about the forces, I, I guess you'd say, that are collectively bringing about an event that is being called the sixth extinction. I did not come up with that term. Um, it's very widely used now in the scientific literature. The idea is that there have been five what are called mass extinctions in the history of multicellular life, which goes back about half a billion years. And there are frightening indications that uh, we are either on the brink of, in, in the early stages of, another one, a sixth extinction, uh, because extinction rates are extremely high right now. They're way, way higher than what are called background rates, which are the rates uh, that prevail throughout mo- have prevailed throughout most of the history of life has that. And so when extinction rates skyrocket, as they are right now, they're, they're probably, you know, hundreds, thousands of times higher than they should be, um, you can get rid of a lot of uh, species pretty quickly, and that's what we seem to be doing. Colbert briefly describes the sobering experience of writing on such a topic, where she met, for example, some of the creatures that were some of the very last representatives of, of their, their kind. kind. I guess one that I can relate is the story of, of Suchi, a Sumatran rhino. There are five species of rhinos, and uh, this is a species that's very down to very low numbers. Maybe there, are, maybe there are a hundred left. Uh, and I hung out with her actually at the Cincinnati Zoo. There was an, an, an attempt being made to artificially inseminate her, which did not work. And then she, uh, so, unfortunately, in the intervening years, has died. She's incredibly gentle and soulful, and um, you know, looked you in the eye, sort of like a puppy dog. Um, very gentle as when I was with her though as it was pointed out to me she could easily have you know killed me um, just stomped on you you know um, but I think there's something very ancient about rhinos they actually you know are pretty ancient creatures this species has a long long history um, and this idea that there's only you know that you're with this really magnificent animal that of which there are only maybe a hundred left in the world. That that's really, you know, talk about sad. I mean, that's very very sad. <laughs> sad. And 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 as I say, she she has subsequently died, which adds a whole another layer of of sadness to it. Colbert has spent three decades reporting on climate issues. Over that time, 
She has spoken with a wide array of marine biologists, zoologists, polar scientists, botanists, and geologists around the world. We asked her if there was a common level of urgency among those in the scientific community, or if there were divergent opinions about the fate of the biosphere. There are certainly variations. I mean, there are some people who would say, you know, it's past midnight. Um, some of the climate scientists who, you know, work work with the models understand there's a, there's a big lag in the climate system so that the greenhouse gases that we've already put up into the atmosphere, we have not felt the full effects of them. People who work in the Arctic, for example, who look at uh, the possibility of these methane hydrates, which are actually buried in the um, sea floor uh, under a lot of pressure. But if the you know fear is that if ocean temperatures rise enough, you could get the, these um, you know methane huge methane deposits, um, basically you know volatilizing up into the air and get this as you say methane pulse. That would be you know just disaster movie stuff. Um, so people who who are looking somewhat over the horizon a little bit um, in different fields who see really scary things going coming potentially down the pike and say, as I say, it's it's past midnight. It's not even you know before midnight. And then some people who'd say, you know, it's five minutes to midnight. But it's very very rare to find someone who's either out there doing conservation biology or climate science um, who is not very concerned and I really can't stress that enough and because people are seeing impacts that are faster than the models projected it's not like you know it's, there's this idea that uncertainty is going to work in our favor there's a real fear that uncertainty isn't actually not working in our favor that you know that we're, we're seeing high-end impacts already that people didn't expect to see for for decades um, so that perhaps we've underestimated some of these problems. Um, so it's a pretty, there's a lot of alarm out there. How's that? The Arctic sea ice is, is a very classic example. The models, when I started reporting on climate change, the climate models said, um, well, if we continue to emit greenhouse gases, you know, the way we are right now, the, the Arctic sea ice will be um, the perennial Arctic sea ice, so that's, you know, where Santa lives, which is, you know, there year-round, uh, will be gone toward the end of the 21st century. Um, and now I think most people who work in the Arctic would say it, it will be gone within a few decades, you know, so that we will have open water um, at the North Pole in the summertime, you know, potentially within the next few, several decades. Uh, so that's something that that is actually happening faster um, than than people thought. Oh, uh, here's another example: coral reefs. I mean, people were really um, worried, and a lot of papers were written at a certain point. Well, coral reefs may not survive uh, beyond 20, 2050, beyond the middle of the century, because of the combination of climate change. Corals don't like very warm water, uh, and they don't like um, CO2, a lot of CO2 dissolves in the water. When we add it to the air, it dissolves in the water. You get acidified water. They don't like changes in the pH of the water. So the combined effects, you know, okay, in, in the, by the middle of the century will be very dangerous. Well, we are seeing uh, terrible effects on coral reefs already. Um, massive bleaching events, global bleaching events uh, that have really done a number on, you know, the Great Barrier Reef, big sections of the Great Barrier Reef. Um, 
you know, other reefs, Indian Ocean reefs, Caribbean reefs. So, you know, people looking at that would also say, wow, you know, we're seeing things decades ahead of where they were predicted. But Colbert has also researched technologies which would stir a glimmer of hope, however faint it may be. For example, geoengineering technologies that are being developed to help block sunlight or to change the reflective properties of clouds. And some marine biologists are conducting what has been called assisted evolution for breeding new corals. We asked Colbert to tell us a bit more about these technologies and others like them. Well, I mean, there's really, in in all of those cases that you mentioned, there's really two pretty profound questions. One is, you know, would they work as they, they're very, very untested. Um, now sometimes called, you know, solar radiation management. We're going to going to block sunlight uh, coming towards the earth, that's going to help us, you know, that's going to counteract the effects of pouring a lot of CO2 into the air. Uh, we're going to, in terms of, you know, on, on the, in the coral reefs, the idea of assisted evolution, we're going to breed up these corals that are resistant to warmer temperatures, and then we're going to somehow, you know, get them out onto the reefs, and we're going to, anyway, even just saying it, you you understand that these are very, we're not... It's not even that we're not nearly there yet. It's like we don't even know if these are possible, okay? So there's the one question of, you know, if they're if they're possible, and then there's the other question of, of if they were possible, are they advisable? So um, a lot of people, and I think you're going to see this more and more, I really do, because we are running, you know, we are so close to midnight or beyond it, you're going to see more and more people say, well, we better find out if they're possible because, we're you know, we're not leaving ourselves any other options. Um, so I think we're going to see more and more pressure and research, and, and perhaps that's a good thing, uh, into technologies that even a decade or two ago would have seemed way too out there. Turning to climate policy, we asked Colbert about the challenges faced by governments. More specifically, if she could elaborate on some of the differences between the U.S. compared to the European approach on climate change. I don't want to speak for the Europeans because I certainly wouldn't claim to, you know, be an expert on sort of where European public policy or cutting edge science is. But I think on both sides of the Atlantic and being here in Germany, I have spoken to several people um, in the climate science field. And I think they would all say pretty much what I just said to you. There's going to be more and more and everyone looking into questions of of governing some of these technologies which may or may not ever come to pass because they have you know if you start to um block sunlight one of the proposals for doing that is you would inject into the atmosphere you would distribute um these what are called sulfate aerosols they're what volcanoes give off if you have a big volcanic eruption you get cooling because you get sort of droplets in the air that uh, reflects sunlight back to space. So if you just basically mimic a volcano, that's one thought. And, um, you know, some people say that would be, you know, fairly easy for us to mimic. It has a lot of complicated implications because it changes, you know, the monsoon patterns and all sorts of things in addition to, you know, cool cooling things down. Um, so there are huge governance issues, you know, you know, there's there's a science fictiony kind of element to it that 
you know, one rogue guy, you know, something out of Dan Brown, one rogue guy decides to change the atmosphere, potentially could do it, you know, um, rich enough, smart enough guy. Uh, so there are people starting to think, I think, on an international level about how do we try to, you know, even con- control these things once again, which may or may not they work. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. In June 2017, U.S. President Donald Trump withdrew the United States from the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change. The Paris Climate Accord is simply the latest example of Washington entering into an agreement that disadvantages the United States to the exclusive benefit of other countries, leaving American workers, who I love, and taxpayers to absorb the cost in terms of lost jobs, lower wages, shuttered factories, and vastly diminished economic production. Thus, as of today, the United States will cease all implementation of the non-binding Paris Accord and the draconian financial and economic burdens the agreement imposes on our country. The Trump administration has also rolled back fuel efficiency standards for U.S. vehicles, and the race to find carbon-based fuels continues unabated. We asked Colbert to shed light on this disconnect between the reality of climate change and the actions of U.S. government officials. You know, I think it's I think it's a couple of things. I think in the very... in high levels of the U.S. government. I don't really want to speak for Donald Trump because I think it's possible that he's genuinely ignorant, but many, many of the people around him know exactly what's going on and are, you know, I don't want to sound too reductive, but, you know, they're basically just being bought and sold by the fossil fuel industry these days, which is fighting this kind of, you know, to-the-death action to keep us pulling fossil fuels out of the ground when, you know, everyone knows that that's a, the wrong thing to be doing. Um, and then in on the part of the public, I think there's a lot of people who just, you know, would prefer not to think about it, would prefer to be, would prefer to believe that, you know, a lot of um, sort of untruths that they've been, you know, very carefully fed by various groups and amplified by various news organizations whose names we could go into. Um, And so I think the combination of, you know, disinformation, disinclination, and, you know, sheer um, disingenuousness has created a really, you know, grim situation right now where anyone who's paying attention even can look around them anyone who's over 20 you know can say oh well the weather is pretty you know pretty weird you know weird things are happening uh it's certainly true here in Europe it's certainly true you know in the U.S. and yet we are not doing and we know exactly what we need to do and 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 you know, some some places and institutions are moving in the right direction, but but as a as a grand you know the grand world scheme of things, we're completely moving in the wrong direction. And speaking of the world, 
We asked Colbert about China's role in mitigating climate change. You know, a long time ago, um, someone said to me, a, a guy who worked works at the Natural Resources Defense Council, which is an environmental group based in New York, and but with offices all over, said to me, you know, if the United States and China decide to to deal with climate change, you know, it will be it, it can be dealt with, and if they decide not to, it won't be dealt with. And there was a moment leading into Paris, and in fact, what brought the Paris Climate Accord into being was a an effort by both the Obama administration and the Chinese government to come together and make make commitments that both thought were they could live with. Um, and now the Americans have, you know, backed out on that. Now, the Chinese have certainly not officially backed out of their commitments, um, whether they're going to live up to them or not. I, I can't tell you that. But you know, one possible outcome of, of all this, the happiest outcome, uh, would be for the Chinese to decide at this point, well, there's a, there's a new, and you know, there's a clean energy economy. Uh, the Chinese, and maybe in concert with the Europeans, uh, there's a clean energy economy of the future. It's coming, you know, whether the oil and gas industry wants to acknowledge it or not at this point. Uh, and someone's going to own it and someone's going to make the money off of the technologies and it might as well be us and leave the Americans behind. That's, as I say, the happiest, you know, um, scenario that you can imagine right now. Since the mid-1980s, Colbert has been a journalist who has reported from Germany, Manhattan, Albany, New York, and as of 1999 for The New Yorker. She has covered a range of scientific and environmental topics, reporting from Greenland to New Zealand. We asked her to reflect on how covering climate change has evolved over her career. There have been a pretty big three decades, I think, as world history goes. I mean, I think even though there's been a sort of sense of maybe maybe of stasis, really, the world is changing really fast. And I think that reporting on environmental issues, I, th- I think that, you know, this this moment will be looked back on as a as a real pivotal moment, a sort of hinge of history moment. I don't know where we're headed from here. A lot of forces seem to be coming together and not the happiest way to say the least about it. Um, And my vision of, of things has really opened up, I think, you know, as you say, I started out really my, the beginnings of my reporting career were actually in Germany as a stringer, you know, for the New York Times. But but really, when I went to Albany for the Times, that was my first really serious reporting experience. And um, Albany, the capital of New York State, a lot of really petty politics, you know, kind of interesting, kind of entertaining. Unfortunately, when you scale that up to the world, you know, I, I guess on some level, my view hasn't changed, which is, you know, that people are capable of great things and they're capable of, of, of terribly, you know, selfish and petty things. We all knew that. And right now our political system does not seem to be once again, to say the least, rising to the occasion to deal with these really serious problems and how that's going to play out. I think that's the really scary thing right now, you know, when the impacts of, you know, whether Albany, you know, passed a budget on time or didn't pass a budget on time, they were pretty limited. They were, you know, it was still 
destructive and stupid, but you know, not dealing with climate change that's destructive and stupid on a whole, you know, several orders of magnitude different. You've been listening to Pulitzer Prize-winning author and journalist Elizabeth Colbert, the American Academy's Fall 2018 Airbus Distinguished Visitor. She spoke at the American Academy on October 25th about the sixth extinction. To hear more of our Beyond the Lecture series podcasts, please visit our website, americanacademy.de. There, you can also view videos of many of our past lectures, register for upcoming events, and find links to the Academy's social channels on Facebook and Twitter. Beyond the Lecture is produced by the American Academy in Berlin, and today's episode was produced by Christina Gonzalez. I'm your host, R.J. McGill. Thanks for listening.